Amen. Well, look at me at John 6. Let's just read verses 35 through 40. I debated on reading a larger context for you guys out of of John chapter 6, and maybe we'll go back and do that. But let's just start with this section here, because this is going to be the part that really captures uh, what I'm going after, what I I think is communicating God's promise of salvation to us. So let's read it, and, and then we'll dive in. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We're looking at the promises of God in this conference, and if we don't start with the promise of salvation, then all of the other promises are are not going to have the the effect and the power and the force that they're meant to have. The promise of God's mercy to us in Christ to give us forgiveness of sins and eternal life and satisfaction for our souls is the headwater that all of the other blessings of the gospel find their yes and amen in. If we miss this, but we go on to some of the more, uh, you know, maybe specific promises of God, then I'm afraid they won't have the same power. They won't have the same effect on you. And so we need to start here, and we need, to, we need God to do a work in us to where we have just a profound faith to believe these things. And when we're considering promises, I guess the way I think about it, when you're considering a promise, is there, there are always two factors, okay? Looking at you, KSU, there are always two factors, okay? Two factors to believing any promise. This is true, it's just, it's just basic logic. It's true in my life, it's true in your life, and every promise you'll ever receive. How much are you going to believe a promise is always dependent on how, how um, able do you think the person is to accomplish what they've promised to you? And then number two, how willing are they to accomplish what they've promised to you? Okay? Those two things are always what's going to make up your confidence in any promise. Right? I could tell you I'm going to stand here and I'm going to do a triple backflip standing right now right? And none of you should believe me. There should not be a a single ounce of confidence in that promise, okay? Why? Because you see me, right? I'm I'm this 31-year-old white guy, okay? That that is not going to be able to, I don't have that ability. Even if I had all the willingness in the world to be able to stand and do that, uh, it's laughable. Of course, I don't have that ability. You should not believe that, right? Or uh, if I promised you that I was going to give you my firstborn child, I have that ability. It's not that hard. Aspen, here you go. Here's your new dad. I could do that, right? That's possible. That would freak her out, right? But would you believe me? Uh, if you don't think I'm a psychopath, right? Hopefully not, okay, right? Why? I have no willingness to do that. I love my daughter. You'd probably make a horrible dad, right? Or mom. Just, it's going to take some time, okay? The first time you have a kid, you're just a bad dad. It's just the truth, okay? 
I was joking with somebody. God's just so faithful, right? He just brings us along slowly. It's really easy to be a dad of like a newborn. They don't do anything. They just lay there, cry, sleep, poop. You know, it's easy, all right? But when they get older, it gets a little harder. Anyways, you wouldn't believe my willingness to do that, okay? And so you would doubt that promise. There are two factors, Two factors to believing all of God's promises, to believing any promise is his power and his willingness. I chose John 6, 35 through 40 because I think that it demonstrates, sorry, I've got a cord wrapped around my foot, these two things most powerfully. And where I think I see Christians fall into the most uh, trouble when it comes to the promises of God is oftentimes they'll believe one of these, one of these things, right? They'll believe Jesus really rose from the dead. I believe that. They'll believe he really is the Messiah. He really is God. He has the power to forgive, right? And they'll believe that with all their heart. They'll believe it enough to be a Christian. And yet they won't believe the willingness of God enough to have any joy in that. Does that make sense? And what you find oftentimes is Christians that are despondent, that are sorrowful, that are sad, because they only believe half the promise. Okay? They believe he has the authority. They believe he's the son of God. They believe he paid for all the sin of the world on the cross. They just don't believe that he's really willing to apply that to them. That he really could love them and rejoice in them in that way. And I think John 6, 35 profoundly illustrates that. So where we're going today is we are going to look at, we're going we're gonna to break this message down into those two sections. The first one I'm going to move a little more quickly through, which is that God has the authority, the ability to forgive sin. Okay? And then the second half, what we're going to look at is that God actually has the willingness to forgive your sin. That's the beauty of the gospel. I'm eager to get there now. I have to hold myself back from preaching that now. Okay? So let me, let, me just, um, let me just set the table a little bit more before we dive into those two things. We've been talking about John Bunyan and the slow of despond. Right? We've been talking about how he says the promises of God are the stepway, the pathway, the hidden pathway through the slow so that you don't have to be a despondent Christian. You don't have to be an apathetic Christian. That doesn't have to be you. It's through the promises of God that you believe that. And the reason John Bunyan was able to write Pilgrim's Progress with such conviction is because he lived this stuff, right? He wasn't just some super Christian that was born, you know, believing the gospel, like John the Baptist, filled with the spirit from the womb, right? And then walking in the faith and truth all of his life. No, uh, uh, John Bunyan was a pretty wretched sinner for a lot of his life, and he knew it. And then he tried to follow Christ, if you go read his book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, and he felt like he was just striving, 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 striving after God and could never find comfort for his soul. If you go read that book, or if you give that book to like a modern-day psychiatrist, his, his biography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, I'm confident they would give him a diagnosis. They would say, this guy's a schizophrenic, right? This guy's in, there's something wrong with this guy. Like he was so depressed, so sorrowful, so believing that he was going to hell forever that he says he felt like he could hear demons walking behind him. He wouldn't stand in front of the church when they were ringing the bell because he was terrified it was going to fall on him and he was going to spend an eternity in hell. He was incredibly despondent. And then one day, the promises of God just broke through. This is what he says. But one day, as I was passing in the field, and K-State students have heard this many times. But one day, as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, fearing lest yet all was not right, suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. 
so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he wants my righteousness, for that was just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse, for my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away so that from that time those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. And so when I came home, I looked to see if I could find that sentence, thy righteousness is in heaven in the Bible. But I could not find any such thing. And my heart began to sink again. Only that was brought to my remembrance, 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. By this word, I saw that the other sentence was true. And from then on, John, John Bunyan was an absolute animal, just a beast for the gospel. Writing books, preaching nonstop, thrown in prison, doesn't care, rejoicing, praising God, writing the second best-selling book in all of the world, second to the Bible. Right? He was just an animal. What happened? What happened? He, he believed the promises of God. He believed that Jesus was there in heaven. He could see him and he was willing to give him his own righteousness, right? That this, in fact, was a promise. James especially is fond of calling salvation a promise. He's fond of talking about it this way. This is what James says in 112, verse 112. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Salvation is a promise to those who love him. Or James 2.5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So here's the question, right? What hinders you from grabbing on to the promise of God for salvation that we find here in, in John 6.35? I think it's probably only one of those two things, right? It's either you doubt his ability to forgive your sins. And this was a problem more in the early church. Was Jesus really God? Does he really have that authority? Was he just a good teacher, right? More likely than not, though, your problem is you doubt his willingness to forgive you of your sins. Okay? So let's look at me at John 6, 35. Let's address those two things. The first thing we'll address is his ability to forgive sins. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that, you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Uh, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For, okay, why, do you, why does he have the authority to do this? To feed them and to not cast them out. To give them eternal life. Why is that? For I have come down from heaven. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, right? But to do the Father's will. When he says, I have come down from heaven, what he's saying there is he has some authority. He's saying that he pre-existed, co-eternal with God from the foundation of the world, eternally begotten, very God of very God, not a man that came into being existence like us, but has existed for all of eternity, that he is God from heaven and he has the ability to give life to whoever he chooses, right? He roots this uh, saying of being able to satisfy in the very essence of who he is, 
right? When he's talking about this bread and water, he's uh, talking about it in the context of the people crying out and saying, hey, our fathers in the wilderness received manna, okay? Show us that you can do that, Jesus. They're looking for a meal is what they're doing early on in chapter 6. They just want the bread. They want some food. They want to see a miracle, right? And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's me. (laughs) I'm right here. The manna that fell from heaven for your fathers in the wilderness, that's me. That manna that satisfied them in a desert, that water from a rock that followed them, that satisfied them in a dry and a thirsty land, that's me. What Jesus is promising here is the ability to satisfy your soul in a dry and weary land where it seems like you shouldn't get any satisfaction. Just think about what it would have been like to be Israel's enemies. Okay? They're in the desert. You know they're walking. There's millions of them. Honestly, I wouldn't worry about them at all. Why? If if you've got 3 million people wandering through the desert for 40 years, they're all going to die. Okay? They're all going to die. There's this trend. Oh, should I go here? How much time do I have? There's, okay, there's this trend. Okay, the other day, Becca, I was sitting on the couch, and Becca was like, just kind of on her phone. And then she went, so John, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? <laughs> I didn't know, she, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I was, I was actually reading a book about it at the time. And so I was like, <laughs> every night, you know, <laughs> before I go to bed. You know? <laughs> but apparently, there, there, there was this nation I think the, the, the Parth, the, oh, I forget their name now, the Parthenians or something like that. The Parthians, thank you, the Parthians. And they were able to rival the Romans. Like they dealt the Romans an incredible defeat. Like they killed uh, Crassus, I think his name was one of their great emperors, destroyed like thousands upon thousands of Roman soldiers. And the reason they were able to do it is because Rome tried to go through a desert to get to them. They tried to go through a desert. It wasn't that, the Parth- that they were stronger. What was their name again? Parthians. The Parth- it wasn't that the Parthians were stronger, right? That cracks me up that somebody knows that. <laughs> it wasn't that the Parthians had a stronger force necessarily, but when you go through a desert like that, right, there's no water, there's no food. You've got thousands of men that need to eat. They're doing hard manual labor day in and day out. What happens? People start to die. People are exhausted. People don't have strength and energy, right? If I'm the Israelites' enemies and I see millions, maybe three million people going through the desert for 40 years before they come to attack me, I'm not worried at all. And now imagine how shocked you would be. You see them going through the desert and it seems like they're getting stronger. Like, where are they getting their food? They're having babies. What? Where, where are they getting their water? Their sandals aren't wearing out. What is going on? Do you see that? This was the manna that came from heaven. This was the water that flowed from the rock. It was able to sustain God's people, even when they were under his judgment. Able to sustain God's people in a dry and weary land in a miraculous way so that they had life and satisfaction when they shouldn't have any. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, what's he saying? He's saying, in me, in my nature, in who I am, I have the ability to cause you to thrive, even when everything in this world looks like you shouldn't be thriving, right? I am able to feed you when there's no water around. I'm able to give you water when you are thirsty. And he roots it, his ability and his authority coming from heaven in his very nature, that he is that bread himself. Whoever partakes of him will be satisfied. Jesus is trying to demonstrate his ability, his power, right? And in fact, guys, this is what Jesus is doing primarily with all of his miracles, 
right? Especially, I think it's most clear in Mark chapter 2. I'll just read it for you. You don't don't have to turn there. We're going to go back to John 6 in a second. This is what it says. It says, They came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed, sorry, on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And it looks like that's all he's going to do. It looks like he's not actually going to heal this guy. Son, your sins are forgiven. That's it, right? Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Which part of the promise are they doubting? The ability, right? He can't do that. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus doesn't have the ability to forgive sins. If he's saying that, he's blaspheming. He's saying he's God. They're doubting the first part of the promise, the ability. And what does Jesus do? Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Do you see that? The miracles were demonstrating his authority and the authority was being demonstrated so that they would believe half the promise that he was able to forgive them of their sins. And I actually think that's almost all of the miracles that are done. They all are uh, little, little tiny parables of Jesus' ability to heal and to forgive and to save from sin, that he has the authority and the power and the willingness to save those who come to him. He has the ability to forgive you all of your sins. He has the authority to say it's all taken care of. He has the ability to feed your souls. He has the ability to raise you from the dead. He has the ability to give you eternal life so that you are happy forever. Eternal life is only a good thing if you're, if you're happy in it, right? Eternal life, sad, that, that's hell. That's what that is. He has the ability to give you real, abundant, eternal life. And for those of you that still doubt that, I have a feeling it's not that many. But the, for those of you that, that still kind of doubt that, if I can't win your hearts by convincing you through, um, through just the wonderful promises, maybe, maybe I can scare you into believing it here. Those of you that question in your hearts, it, you know, does Jesus forgive sins? Is he able to do that? Here, here, here's the Old Testament parallel. The Old Testament parallel that Jesus is drawing in John 6 is with the Israelites in the wilderness. How did they get into the wilderness in the first place? Why are they wandering in the desert? Do you remember? It's because, they, it's because they didn't believe the promises. They didn't enter into Canaan when God offered it, right? God said, go into the land, go into Canaan, conquer it, win, I'll fight with you, I'm there. I have the ability to give you the victory. And they went in with the spies and they came back and they said, uh-uh, there's big guys there. We're like grasshoppers. We can't do it. They grumbled and they complained, right? They refused to go in. What are they doing? They're doubting God's ability to save. And listen to what God says to them. This is incredibly sobering. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Basically, the Pharisees in John chapter 6 are doing the same thing that their ancestors did. The bread of life shows up. 
a land flowing with milk and honey, a place where they'll never be hungry, never be thirsty. Jesus is the embodiment of that. And he's saying, come to me, enter into the promised land, believe in me. And what are they doing? They're grumbling, right? Look at me at John 6, if you're still there. Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They're doubting his ability. They're doubting who he is. They're doubting that he can really give them what he's promised to give them. It's the exact same sin that the Israelites committed in Canaan. And for all of us in the room this morning, that doubt if God is able to save you from your sins, you're doing the exact same thing. And it's actually an affront to God's very character. You see that? It's actually you questioning if God has the ability to save. It's actually despising God. And that's a terrifying place to be. And you should repent of your unbelief in who God is and his ability to forgive sins. He has the authority. He is the son of God. He did come down from heaven. He has life within himself. He is able to save. That is wonderful truth. That's half the promise. That's half the promise that he has the ability in himself. What's the second half? The second half is that he is willing. Look up me now again at the second half. Look at, uh, let's look at verse 38 and read 39 and 40. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. Remember, what, the second half of the promise is talking about if somebody has the desire. That word will, it means desire. That's, it's, it, they're synonyms, okay? Not to do my own will or my own desires, but the will or desire of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Why should you have confidence in that? Why should you have confidence that he's not going to lose you? Because this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Do you see that? Isn't that amazing, guys? Guys, God is not a begrudging Savior. God is not, um, uh, you know, begrudgingly willing to save you. He actually desires to save isn't that amazing? That's why Jesus came into the world in the first place, right? Because God desired to save. He desired for his house to be full. You believing that God not only has the ability to save, but has the actual desire to save, it's foundational for your joy. I know a lot of people in the world that have one or the other of those things, right? I've got some problems in my life. Let's, let's just invent a fictitious one for the sake of the story. Okay, let's say you break down on the side of the road. Let's say it's even a simple fix, but you just don't have the mechanical knowledge to do it, okay? Uh, there are, uh, you know, probably a thousand people that will fly by you that have all the ability in the world to fix your car, but they don't have the willingness to stop, right? And then if your life is like me, you know what'll happen? You'll call your friends, or you'll call your mom, or you'll call your brother, and they'll show up and they'll be like, you know, I'm super willing to help, but I have no idea what to do. <laughs> you ever been there? And that's equally worthless. <laughs> I appreciate you being with me. <laughs> Still broken. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. <laughs> here's, here's what's amazing about our Savior. He has the ability to save and the willingness. Oh, I'm not doing a good job. I wish I could make this more powerful. He has the ability to save and the desire. Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that? That he has the desire to save. He's leaning into saving you. He wants to save souls. This makes all the difference in the world. Let me just read some scripture to you here. Maybe God will just make this powerful and effective in your heart. Maybe you'll actually believe that he wants to save. Luke 12, 32 says, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is your Father's good pleasure. He long, He wants to do it, right? Or Luke 14, 23, the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. He wants a full house. It's a magnificent meal. Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Luke 15, 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents all of heaven's looking and saying, come on, believe, repent, believe he desires to save you. And when you believe that, this is the second half of Luke, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What's the fruit of that? When you have both those things, what do you say? Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. When you grasp those two truths, that's when the fruit flows. And you know what the ultimate picture, the ultimate image of God's willingness to save is? Hopefully you all know it. It's the cross. It's the cross. Our Savior forsaken by everyone on earth. Our Savior forsaken by God in heaven, suspended halfway between heaven and earth. All alone, bearing the wrath of God. Why? Because he was willing. Because he was willing to save you. Because he desired to save you. Right? Why? Because the Father was willing and His will was to do the Father's will, right? Oh gosh. And if we doubt that, there's a similar principle that applies as with the, as with the doubting His ability. There's a similar principle that applies, guys. If we doubt His willingness, if we have all our sin come to mind, yeah, but I did this. Yeah, but I'm, if you knew how inconsistent I am in my quiet times. <laughs> Yeah, but if you knew the thing I watched this last week, yeah, but if you knew what I said, if you knew what I did, yeah, but if you doubt God's willingness to save you, you're doing the same thing. It's actually maligning his character. You're saying you died for nothing. You're saying that's not enough. That's not enough of an image for me. I'm going to need more. What more can Christ give you? If him dying on the cross is not enough to convince you that he loves you and wants to save you from your sins, I don't know what else he can do. I guess you are hopeless. But if you'll look this morning, if you'll see Christ hanging on that cross and you'll see it as someone that went there willingly to save sinners, to save all those who hunger and thirst, all those who with a humble heart will cry out to him, Son of David, just have mercy on me. All those, like the woman that had the flow of blood, she said, if I can just touch him, I'll be healed. Or Jairus, where he says, uh, come and heal my daughter. Or the centurion, who says, you can come, and, and you don't even need to come. I know, I know you have the ability. Or, or you know, there's the, the leopard. Do you guys remember this? Right before in Mark 2, he says, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I will. I will. If you can see the cross and you can know that he desires to save you from your sins and you can know that he has the ability to save you from your sins, your joy will be made full. Don't be unbelieving, little flock. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's, ama- that's an amazing truth. 
that'll light a fire under you. That'll transform your life. That'll lead you to go out of here skipping and singing. Can it really be that good? What do I have to do? Okay, if, that's, if it's that good, what do I have to do to receive this bread? How do I do it? What do I do to be doing the works of God? And what Jesus says just earlier in John chapter 6 is believe in the one whom he sent. That's it. Are you kidding me? Can the gospel really be that good? Just believe in the one he sent? If you believe that, something powerfully happened to you. What will be is unbridled joy. What it'll be is all of those haters, <laughs> things that are bringing you down, whatever it is, you'll just, you won't even care. You know what I'm saying? Oh, man. Unbridled joy. The sun will shine a little brighter. The food will taste better. You'll rest in those promises. And what you'll find is true rest for your soul. You'll receive those things in faith and you'll feast on Christ and you'll rest in this whole trip. What you'll find is a profound amount of joy and peace just in believing these promises. With gladness of heart, they were breaking bread in one another's homes. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. It, these things, the promises of God, will become sweet. And what you'll find, Christian, is you'll find your way out of the slow of despondency. You'll find, yourself, uh, you'll find the way out of that bog. Does that make sense? That's, that's my desire for you. So let, let, let's just close here. Let, let's close. I'm just going to read, read out of Mark chapter 2 here. What, how are we going to know the promise? Does he have the ability? What does he say? He says, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He heals him. He, he has the authority. He can forgive all your sins now. Okay, does he have the willingness? I should have just read it. I'll read it for you. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Amen? Amen. What a wonderful promise. What an amazing Savior we have. I, I was preparing this and I'm just rejoicing myself that this is the goodness of the gospel. It's that good, okay? So here's what I want to do. I want to close. before. I just want a time of prayer before we um, have whatever we're going to do next, okay? So if you could, just silently, just take a second, meditate on these things, and wherever you struggle to believe, wherever it is, if, do, you, do you struggle to believe he has the ability? Do you struggle to believe he has the desire? He, he offers, this is the promise of salvation to all who believe. I'll just ask you to pray and ask that your faith would be made full. We'll have a moment of silence to allow you to pray for that, and then I'll pray to close our time. Oh, Jesus, you are just such a wonderful Savior. Oh, Jesus, not only are you able to save, but you are willing. God, you could have come to this world and you could have had all the power in yourself and you could have turned up your nose at us. You would have been absolutely just in doing that, but instead, God, you had compassion on us. 
like sheep without a shepherd. You are willing, even those that rejected, even the Pharisees, God, you say to them, oh, Jerusalem, how long I have wanted to sweep you under my wing like a mother hen with her chicks. God, you desire to save. You are not begrudging in your saving, but you are loving to bless, pouring out, liberal with your love. We thank you, Lord, that you have poured it out on us. Oh, the love of God, that we should be called children, Lord. We just thank you for this kindness. We thank you that you're able and willing to save. And Lord, I just pray, would you bless these people? Would you bless these students? Would you fill them with faith? God, I pray that they would have faith and they would cling to the promise of salvation that to all who believe, you are able to save and you are willing to save, God. I pray for anyone that's doubting. God, I pray that you would remove all doubt. I pray that instead they would walk out of here just with joy in their hearts, praising God and, and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. God, I pray you'd fill them with your spirit and you'd take away all the doubts, you'd take away all the fears, Lord, and that you would just fill them with faith and believing. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Hey, I, I'm sorry, I have one more. I, I think I have four minutes, right? Do I have four minutes? Okay, just one more example of, of why this is powerful, okay? <laughs> I've never told anybody this story before, okay? Literally nobody, ever, okay? Not even my wife, all right? When, I know, that's to get your, that's the hook, all right? Gotcha. <laughs> when I was being baptized um, as a freshman, I can still remember one of the questions they asked me was, do you believe that Jesus paid for all of your sins and if you were to die today that you'd go to heaven? That was one of the questions they asked me. And I said yes. But in my heart, I was thinking, oh, I really hope so. I, I had like a significant amount of doubt, right? Like I believed, but I had a significant amount of doubt. And then everybody cheered and then they dunked me, okay? And probably for the next like year and a half, two years, I, I, I was like thinking about that. Like, did my baptism count? <laughs> you know, <laughs> was that legit? You know, it was just like a pebble in my shoes, just like a thorn in my mind. It was something that just kept me from real fullness of joy at times. Not all the time. I'm not trying to say it was this profound despair or something, but it was just like something that I would just think about and kind of twitch a little bit, you know? I was like, what's going on? When I understood this truth, that God is willing to save, all that fear went away. It's, 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 it's kind of like when you're applying for something, you're applying for a job, and you think the CEO hates your guts and doesn't want to actually give you the job. You worry about every smudge, every detail, every misspelled thing. You're like, oh man, I really... Every little thing that you do wrong is reason for doubt. It's reason for fear. It's reason that you won't get in when you doubt their willingness. But now think about how radically different of a picture it is if you're applying for a job at your dad's company, and you know for sure your dad wants you to work with him. But he's like, well, you still need to apply, <laughs> right? Are you telling me you're going to worry about that smudge in the upper right-hand corner? Are you tell me you're going to worry that you misspelled that one word, right? Are you tell me you're going to worry about every little tiny mistake? You're going to worry that you had some doubt when you were baptized? No, God is willing to save. He is eager to save. And what that does is it makes us the kind of people that aren't just walking on eggshells all the time. You know what I'm saying? Not afraid that every little thing is going to displease our Father and, and disqualify us from the kingdom or something, right? No, He is willing to save. It makes a radical difference in your life. It makes a radical difference in how you deal with sin. He is eager to forgive sins. Love covers a multitude of sins, and God is love. Does that make sense? Understanding this part of the promise, His willingness to save, is foundational. Uh, rejecting it will lead you to a, a lack of fullness of joy in the Christian life, okay? And so I'm hopeful that you will be able to hold fast to that promise of salvation. Okay, I, just, I, I meant to share that with you. Amen?